Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Before we begin, I just want to say, please consider supporting the show on patreon.com slash plants. Monthly support from my patrons makes this show possible. So if you're enjoying it, you got to thank them because I literally would not be doing this without their support. But today, it's a very fun episode. My friend Bill Michalek from the Field Guides podcast joins us again to talk about a subject that I have always taken for granted, and that is the chemical toxicity of black walnut, Juglans nigra. If you're like me and you live in eastern North America, you've grown up hearing, don't plant things under black walnut. They produce allelochemicals, essentially compounds that aren't used for growth and reproduction that enter the soil and toxify it for other plants. And this is supposed to help them get a leg up on the competition. This is something I've repeated time and time again to friends and family members looking for recommendations. But as you're going to hear, it's not that straightforward. In fact, it may not be that story at all. I'm going to let Bill tell you all of the interesting details, what they uncovered, because they did this for an episode on their podcast, The Field Guides. Go check it out because they do a much more thorough job at covering this tree in a broader sense. We're not going to talk about everything black walnut today, but we are going to drill in on sort of the unnecessary hype around the allelopathy of black walnut. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Bill Michalek. I hope you enjoy. Right, Bill Michalek, welcome back, my friend. It has been a while since we've last had you on the podcast, but for those that don't listen to your podcast or know who you are, let's start off with a brief intro. Tell everyone a bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. My name is Bill Michalek, and uh, I'm a occasional guest on this podcast, but your podcast was one of the inspirations behind me and my co-host, Steve Fleck, starting the Field Guides podcast. Nice. So uh, Steve's been on your podcast before, oh, yeah. long before even I was, I think. But um, what we do is we pick a natural history topic. We research the recent science behind that topic and then go out to a natural spot and um, share what we learned and then make, you know, try to make funny comments and make it enjoyable and make it seem like you're on a walk with friends. Uh, because five years ago or however long ago it is now that we started it, we looked around and said, you know, there's not really a podcast like that. Most um, nature podcasts are fairly straightforward and they're great, but um, I love going for hikes with friends and making bad puns and <laughs> making silly comments. And uh, I, it helps me learn. It helps me remember stuff. So we try to do it monthly, but um, Steve and I both both have lives and a lot going on. So yeah, we, um, we are always in awe of how regularly you uh, get a podcast out. But I do have to say, we have to do, a, I think we have to do a lot more research than you do. Yeah, I just get to be a nerd and ask questions. <laughs> I get to rely you, on my my guests. <laughs> you bring people on and do the heavy lifting, right? Right, exactly, exactly. No, I, I think you guys succeed in every way, shape, and form. I love it because it's a chance to feel like I'm hiking with you guys again. But I know many of my listeners listen to your podcast. It regularly comes up in the like, also, you should try kind of sections of Spotify and and iTunes, but I I can't recommend it enough. The Field Guides podcast, it is such a pleasure. And and you say puns like it's something bad. I love them, (laughs) 
but you also have a, a, a touch of irreverence that just makes me smile because I'm a cold-hearted person at, <laughs> at my core. <laughs> yeah. So. so, and that, that kind of leads right into what we're going to talk about today, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I was inspired by one of your episodes and you said recent science, but I know from, from this episode and others <laughs> that sometimes you... You kind of have to go digging because when we talk about natural history, especially in the way that you guys approach it, which is so refreshing nowadays, because a lot of science doesn't deal with that anymore. So sometimes you got to dig a little bit to get into the interesting natural history side of the science rather than sort of highfalutin mathematical modeling and, and theoretical approaches. Right. And, and my background is definitely not that. Uh, I'm an educator uh, working chiefly with kids. So Steve kind of brings the more of the research background and uh, I bring more of the education background. So my goal, I think one of the th things that makes our podcast interesting is there's definitely uh, kind of a push and pull between us because he's always trying to uh, raise the bar in terms of what we're covering in terms of depth and quality. And I'm always trying to, I don't want to say dumb it down because I'm not, I'm just trying to make it as accessible to as many people as possible. Uh, because I mean, to me, that's that's why I got into natural history and, and into teaching is because I'm hoping I can get people into it and hopefully they'll make a difference. Um, but you're right, because a lot of times the when we pick a topic, uh, we might not, not be able to find recent papers <laughs> on that topic. So we have to do some digging. And uh, the, the what we're going to talk about today, for some reason, there hasn't been a ton of recent research on it. Yeah, totally. Right? And, and again, another way you succeed is I, I really appreciate that sort of, I, I call it a tug of war that you guys are doing, but it's, it's not a war, it's fun. Um, and, right. and one thing I really want to commend you on, you specifically as an educator, especially someone that deals with younger children, like we're talking young kids, uh, is you manage to make things digestible and approachable in a way that doesn't short your audience. And I, I really bothers me when we approach things like movies, entertainment, or education, and they got to bring it down to the most basic, boring-ass level. You don't do that. You manage to make it digestible, but also still wildly interesting. So kudos, my friend. Oh. Well, I appreciate you saying that. It means a lot coming from you, and, and that's really what, what I'm trying to do all the time, no. is just make it accessible, but still be covering um, highfalutin material. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> And yeah. so the reason we connected today is you guys did a recent episode. It's like your second to most recent episode was on the black mm -hmm. walnut. And it's a tree I feel like I was familiar with, uh, you know, I, living in Illinois, it was everywhere. I mean, it was the backbone of most of the forests, most of the natural areas. It just, it became a tree I got very used to seeing. New York, not so much, but still there. And then I go into your episode and I'm like, I don't know this tree at all. So I, I want to <laughs> say we're not going to cover it in the degree that you did because I want everyone listening right now to go to your episode and download it and listen to it because you guys did a very thorough approach to what this tree is. But one of the aspects that stuck out to me and the, the reason I texted you was like, hey, we got to talk about this, is this whole idea of allelopathy. Um, and so what made you guys want to tackle that side of it? Like, what is it and what made you want to tackle that side of it? Yeah, black walnut, like you said, it, it's a, a tree that here in Western New York, where I'm from and where you, you used to live, where you grew up, black walnut's here, but it's definitely not a dominant tree species. It was always fun to come across, and um, I hadn't really thought about doing an episode on it, but we 
do very often use ideas from our audience. Hmm. And within the past year, we got uh, an email from a listener who just said, hey, you know, check out Black Walnut and and the fact that it's a lelopathic effects, which everybody, quote unquote, knows about <laughs> isn't really a thing. And I'm like, what? <laughs> because like you, I'd always heard, you know, hey, Black Walnut, uh, it outcompetes other uh, plants around it using chemicals. And I had taught people that for decades. <laughs> so whenever I hear something like that, for whatever reason, I, I love taking something that I always took as gospel and, and taking it apart and debunking it. To, there's something satisfying about that to me. I, I don't know why, but I think we've talked about this before. Yeah. But um, so I looked into it and it just blew my mind. <laughs> the fact that this this fact that people know about. And when I did a search for black walnut allelopathy, it isn't until page three of the Google sites or, the, you know, Google search, page three of the sites that come up where it's even questioned. Wow. That it's a thing. Wow. Like all of the main links that come up are things like black walnut, the killer tree, uh, <laughs> black walnut, it's killing all the other plants. It's just taken as fact that, that, that that's what it is. So I just found it fascinating to dive into that and say, okay, what is the real story? Yeah. And I mean, you, we both probably deal with this. You get emails or messages from people and sometimes, most of the time they're great. You know, people are awesome and engaged, but sometimes you'll get those super conspiratorial ones where you're like, come on, <laughs> really? And this, yeah. I could see even when you guys started the episode, knowing something good was going to come out of it. I was still kind of like, come on now, this is common knowledge, right? Like I, right. and you're right. I look at like extension offices. We're not talking just blogs. We're talking connected to universities, scientific institutions, master gardener. Like everyone says, do not plant stuff under black walnut. It's allelopathic. It'll kill it and nothing will succeed yep. there. But then at the same time, I've also done these moments where I go, okay, then what can survive? And then you start seeing like the list gets longer and longer. you're like, wait, what is sensitive? So there is this weird disconnect, even despite sort of this commonly held assumption that it's producing compounds that suppress or even harm other plants around it. Yep. And it's it's mostly due to just people repeating what they heard from someone else. Yeah. So, yeah. And yep. in fact, I think you guys mentioned that in the episode, like people are either citing stuff that's no longer in print or just citing one source over and over and over if they cite it, you know, it's, it's, oof. it makes you start to go like, oh man, I have to really be careful about my commonly held assumptions all the time. Right. Right. And, I, and I, but I think that's a wonderful thing um, to be able to say, Hey, this is something that everybody thinks is true, but here's the real story behind it. Yeah. And it's, it's again, it's a great tree. It should be celebrated. It's a very valuable tree in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. um, you know, I, I know some foresters that get dollar signs in their eyes when you walk across a nice straight specimen but you know it's culturally important you can eat these plants you can enjoy them they're a, an important part of the ecology i've seen a few like very specific host insect relationships up there so it's to kind of pull the the the, the layers back a little bit and, and get a more nuanced discussion around it is, is really nice and so how far back roughly did you have to go to even find someone that had tested this in some way or at least approached this scientifically so it was pretty much um there was a paper from the year 2000 Ooh. by rj willis in the journal allelopathy and oh, wow. 
he did a review of research. And what, what I found first, though, even before that, was something from the Washington State uh, Extension. There's a, a professor there, Linda Chalker Scott. And I don't, I couldn't find any specific papers that she's done on black walnut, mm. but she wrote an article. Let me see if I can find it. There's a, a website that I would recommend to your listeners called the garden professors. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So they do a lot of debunking. Like a lot of their blog posts are the myth of this and the myth of that. And just doing the initial research, and it might have actually been the link that uh, our listener sent to us, and she referenced that paper. So mm. we dealt we delved into that paper, uh, and really there wasn't a ton of information debunking allelopathy of black walnut. But I felt that Willis did a, a good job of saying, "Look, here's what's out there. Here are the issues with it." Right. And this is right. why we should be questioning like these commonly held assumptions. Um, and the the woman from the Washington State Extension, she tracked down, like you said, she tracked down a lot of the papers, or a lot of the I shouldn't say papers, but publications that are out there that a lot of these Internet links will lead you to. <laughs> and a lot of them source these two publications that were put out by Cooperative Extension um, sources. One of them doesn't seem to really exist. <laughs> and the other one's not even in print anymore. Cause in, in her article, she talks about how she tried to track them down. And the one she said, I couldn't find, it doesn't seem to really exist. And the other one, when she contacted that cooperative extension, they said, those aren't even in print anymore wow. because wow. they say usually after five years or so, they take them out of print because they want to be sure that what they're publishing is recent. And she said, it's not in print now, whether that's because the information was found to be incorrect, I can't say, but it's just not in print anymore. And again, it's just like this echo chamber. Papers keep referencing those publications. Most of those publications had to do with those lists of plants that you mentioned, the ones that are sensitive to black walnut and the ones that aren't. So, but I want to talk about like how it all seemed to start. Yeah, yeah, please. Like the whole idea. It actually goes, we, we mentioned this in, in our podcast, but it actually goes back to all the way back to the first century. Oh. So almost, I shouldn't say all, but so many references to this. They talk about Pliny the Elder um, <laughs> from the first century. Uh, he was taken out by Vesuvius. Oh, um, oops. Yeah. So when, uh, what was the city that was destroyed by Vesuvius? Pompeii. Uh, Pompeii. Yeah. yeah. So he died there, but he referenced black walnut saying that things die within its compass, the shadow of its compass. And it seems like a lot of sites that bring up black walnut and allelopathy, they reference him almost as, I don't know, trying to up their cachet. Like, look, this goes all the way back to the first century. Um, but one thing I didn't put into the, the podcast, we just didn't have time for it, but I looked into Pliny the Elder. I don't know what you know about him, but very well-known writer, historian, and at the time, he actually published something like a 26-volume um, book of everything people knew about the natural world, huh. which in itself, I think he deserves huge props for. Yeah. But um, 
there were wonderful gems in there. Like um, black, uh, he believed that bears, when they were born, were just amorphous blobs of flesh and that the mother bears had to lick them into a bear shape. Um, <laughs> he, he also reported that if you wanted to uh, cure a scorpion sting, you had to burn the scorpion, put its ashes into wine and drink that. Naturally. So <laughs> I know we don't you know, want to judge uh, people from the past by our, our modern standards, but I, I got to wonder if even back then people were like, really? Uh, so I just... I think it's funny to say that or to point out that a lot of the modern references when they're citing that black walnut is allelopathic, they point to Pliny the Elder as like, see? And I'm like, I don't know if you want to use that as your <laughs> your reference point, right? His reality um, had to be something though. I mean, to live in a world where you lick a baby into shape. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> it sounds really cool. Yeah, sure. But there doesn't seem to be a, a ton of references to black walnut between then and up into the 20th century. Wow. So there was a, a researcher in the 1920s, a researcher in Virginia, who seems to be kind of where the modern perception of black walnut as allelopathic um, stems from. So before him, there was references to black walnut being allelopathic, but it seemed mostly to be blaming the deep shade under a black walnut tree or its extensive rune system. It really was, it was more of a competition thing than a allelopathic thing. Right. And, mm -hmm. but this researcher, Massey in the twenties, he noticed in his garden that his tomato plants were wilting. So the story goes that he dug down and he found that wherever there were tomato plants that were wilting because not all of them were wilting just some of them were and the ones that were wilting is just some leaves he claimed to have found that everywhere there were wilting tomato plants their roots were in contact with the roots of a black walnut tree um, i love imagining this guy digging up his backyard and his family going like what are you doing <laughs> dude right? calm down <laughs> so he started reporting on this and it's it's said that other people, other researchers seem to report the same thing. He went into the lab and he started to play around with planting tomato plants and other plants with walnut bark. And it seemed to back up his findings. So he concluded that there had to be some kind of toxic principle hmm. going on. And he thought it has to do something with jaglone, which is um, that chemical that we know comes from black walnut and we can talk more about it. It doesn't come directly. Sure. Um, it's not produced directly by the plant. So he and other researchers, they suggested that there was some connection between that compound and this detrimental effect on the growth of other plants that kind of kicked it off. Hmm. Now in 1948, so about 20 years later, USDA actually came out with uh, like a, a public document saying, you know, a lot of farmers, a lot, a lot of um, people associated with agriculture, they're saying that black walnut is to toxic to other plants. This has not been proven in the lab. This is not something that we hold to be true. Um, but like most good rumors, like most good stories, people stuck with black walnut being toxic. It seemed like people just completely ignored this. So not soon after that, in the 50s, experimental field testing began oh so people started to test 
whether this was true, doing much more experimental models. Because it seems like most of Massey's work was really more observational. Mm. So, and the field testing really didn't show any consistent hmm. effects. Um, now, testing continued on in the lab, but that really seemed to focus more on extractions of jaglone, applying that to plants, putting it in soil where plants were grown. So when it came time for R.J. Willis to, to do his kind of overview of the literature, he said, all right, hold on. <laughs> so we have these observations that kind of kicked off looking into are there allelopathic effects going on? So in his paper, and I would recommend people go, go and read it because it is a very readable paper, um, you know, because it is an overview. And he reported that even though Jaglone is a toxic chemical, because a lot of those lab experiments did reveal that it, it can be toxic to plants, it's not found in intact tissues hmm. of walnuts. So as, as far as, as we know, it, it is in, in all walnuts, but it varies widely by species. And even in, you know, within populations, as I'm, I'm sure you'd appreciate. <laughs> right. So within walnuts, there's an, a non-toxic precursor called hydrojaglone. And then in the soil, that's oxidized to form jaglone. Okay. So... Most of it seems to be contained in the roots and the hulls of hmm. the black walnut, not in the wood. But in my research, I think I mentioned this in our episode, depending on who you're reading, some sources say it's in the leaves. Some sources say, well, it's in the leaves, but there's not a whole lot in there. So it's hard to really pin down um, where the highest concentrations of it is. So... In those lab experiments we talked about, you know, a lot of the researchers, they used artificial experimental methods right? So to test for allelopathy. So some of the specific instances that Willis mentioned is they would use soilless media and then those extractions of jaglone uh, from walnut tissues. Well, those things don't occur in nature, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Or they'd use um, potting media instead of soil. So in that, Willis mentions that that has shown when you use potting media instead of actual soil, it can increase allelopathic effects. Hmm. So maybe because it's, there's increased permeability. Right. So, you know, these experiments that some people say, well, look in the lab, Jaglone is, is toxic to these other plants. We're like, but yeah, what they're doing in the lab, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really mirror what happens in nature, right? Yeah. So... And I know we've had a conversation this, about this before. Just trying to show allelopathic effects can be super difficult to do. Yeah. Like it can be hard to say in a natural system, you know, this one plant is producing chemicals that are negatively affecting another plant because you also have those other fa com competition factors at play. Big time. So it, it can be very difficult to say for sure that. This plant is producing a chemical that is harming other plants around it. So, you know, there's you have a lack of field evidence to support the laboratory results. So 
kind of the critics, and, and Willis isn't the only one, they've tried to insist that, look, if we're going to do experimental testing, it has to include a functional soil system. <laughs> yeah. That's going to mimic what happens in nature, but how hard is that to do? Extremely. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Extremely hard. So they, they kind of made a list of things that they're like, if you're going to do uh, lab experiments trying to prove allelopathy in black walnut and other plants, they kind of gave a checklist, checklist, right? So they said, well, we got to keep these things in mind. One, jaglone, it underglo- undergoes chemical, physical, and biological degradation of the soil. We know that. Um, organic matter, clay particles in soils, they can bind jaglone. So that's going to reduce the movement within the soil. Mm. And then if you have a soil that's well-drained and aerated, it's going to host you know, this community of healthy soil microbes. <laughs> They're going to be breaking down the jaglone. <laughs> the jaglone doesn't persist. So, like, you have to keep these things in mind when you're designing there's these experiments. So then they go on to say, okay, look, first we have to accept that lab-based approaches that are going to isolate jaglone from the national environment, they cannot determine whether allelopathy occurs in nature. Right. Okay. Okay, we could say that yes, jaglone is, is toxic to other plants, but we can't then just jump and say, well, that's what's happening in nature. And then Second, we got to prove that jaglone is accumulating to phytotoxic levels and that it's reaching reaching a target plant. We got to prove that. And they did say, they were honest, they say this may pose an insurmountable problem. Because while walnut trees, they do release large quantities of jaglone, very little reaches the bulk soil and then other plant roots. Right. I mean, that's what seems to be happening. And I feel like all but the most sterilized, destroyed soil is going to have a microbial life in it, right? It's it's impossible right. to not. <laughs> and and that's what really got me during your episode was that realization like, holy crap, A, the, the compound everyone talks about isn't in the plant naturally. It has to oxidize. You know, I've always heard leaves and twigs. That's the thing. Get those out of your garden, yada, yada, yada. But then thinking about what is actually happening for, out in the wild versus in the lab and and to me i've i've just dabbled in this world scientifically and the reviewer comments you usually get on these papers are have you considered all the confounding factors and you're like <laughs> i don't have a lifetime to to do that right. so yeah it it's there's so much to it that i understand from the scientific side why these sort of tests are hard to even approach let alone publish Who's going to devote their limited funds and time to that in academia? Right. But then the flip side is like, right. yeah, what do these lab treatments or experiments teach us about what's actually happening in the wild? You can't replicate that. Right. And I, I think it's important to point out that it seems that this connection that, that's being made between jaglone and, and black walnut and plants not doing well, it all goes back to Massey and his observations of his tomato plants, because <laughs> one of the things that, that Willis and then um, a subsequent researcher that Linda Chalker Scott, I talked about, they said, hold on, because jaglone is not the only secondary metabolite that's produced by walnut species. Hmm. They said there's, they're loaded with a number of, uh, I'm reading off a list here, phenolics, flavonoids, alkaloids, terpenes, quinones that are untested. (laughs) So, and, and what I liked about Willis's review is he wasn't saying like, look, we're not saying that for sure black walnut 
doesn't have impacts on other plants. Mm. What we're just saying is that this fact, quote unquote, that people believe that black walnut is producing jaglone and that's harming other plants. He's just saying the research really doesn't support that. Right. We have observational accounts, but then field testing that's been done is super inconclusive. Yeah. And, and even those lab tests that were done, a lot of them showing that jaglone can be toxic to other plants, even those aren't, there's not a clear consensus right. that right, jaglone is definitely toxic to other plants. Um, for everyone that that does show it, there's others that don't. Yeah. So, and I mean, it, it, my 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 friends Aaron and Aaron from this podcast will kill you. Say this time and time again. Even if we know something is toxic, we know this through medicine. The poison is in the dose, right? And and so the, that element of like, is there even enough of it? Even if we can identify a compound, let alone the suite of chemicals plants produce. I mean, sweet is being a generous term for very chemically complex organisms. Uh, is it ever in the soil enough? And and yeah, maybe, you know, a walnut plantation could have a high concentration, but like that tree next to this kind of, it's it, it's just one of those things that you take for granted. And then when an episode like yours comes out, you go, oh, I've been living a lie. <laughs> right. And then there's also that, that list of plants that often you see these lists, these plants are negatively affected by black walnut. We talked about this before we turned on the mic. It's tomatoes, apples, <laughs> and you got to wonder, why are you growing tomatoes and apples under a black walnut tree? Right, exactly. <laughs> Who's going, yeah, this is the spot right here. You know, this dense right. shaded canopy with all these roots I have to dig through. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. So you got to question it, right? Yeah. And I mean, even yeah. our garden, which is situated by a walnut that gets a lot of leaves, we try to keep materials out of it you know we want to control as much as we can to get the harvest i've never really taken it serious enough to like get every little leaf out and and let's be honest like the roots are going everywhere like you you can kind of think of like the roots of a tree at the very least spanning what the canopy covers what it shades if not more uh you know there's no way you could win a battle unless you go and kill every black walnut which i'm not about to do and i've never noticed any negative effects it's just but my plants get full sun so Go right. figure. Even when, when you know, back in the, the early 50s, when the USDA released that statement about black walnut, they referenced farmers all over the country providing, you know, photographic evidence that, look, I have black walnut trees growing and things are growing fine underneath them. Right. Uh, so, yeah, um, I wanted to, to share something that, that Willis ended his review with. Yeah. Um, and is it okay if I just read it? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a good, I read the paper. It's a great quote. So, okay. So he said, while the genus Juglans provides what are probably the most widely accepted examples of allelopathic plants, it must be concluded that there is still no unambiguous demonstration of its effect. There is certainly too much evidence to conclude that walnut has no chemical effect on neighboring plants. Hmm. However, it certainly remains for more and better work to be done. Beautiful. So, beautiful. And that's, and that was honest science right there yeah and that was 22 years ago <laughs> it blows my mind that that was 22 years ago but i digress right yeah but i mean i mean again the the research goes with very often agricultural research is going to go where the money is yeah I, I don't think people are 
really trying to grow a lot of things under black walnut trees, right? No. So, uh, you know, I don't think this is a very active area of research, but I'll definitely be looking for anything that comes out because I would love to find out more about it. Totally. And, you know, it's allelopathy is a lot like pollination in that it's a good story. It's easy to tell a simplified version of whatever system you're speaking on. But it is extremely difficult, as we just kind of outlined, to drill in and do anything meaningful, to understand. You have to spend the time, the effort, the money, let alone the hours and hours of combing over data and analyzing just to find a messy little thing in the noise that might suggest it. And so my heart really does go out to people that devote their scientific careers to these kinds of questions because it's not easy to be a scientist, especially in the natural history realm of things. And so anyone that can turn their their time and effort into this world should be celebrated, but it's, we don't want to cheapen their work by constantly repeating these easy to tell stories because it breezes over all of the nuance, like what we just discussed here. And I'm sure this is just the surface of it, you know? Right. Well, I, like I said, at the beginning of the podcast, I derive a certain amount of satisfaction from debunking these things. And it's not just cause I want to, uh, cause I want to prove something. <laughs> something wrong it's because i often find that the original story it's catchy and it's usually simple it's easy to relate to you know a group but i often find that the real story like you said it's more nuanced and it's way more interesting yeah like i was just fascinated going back to the history of the story and then what we actually know right And then you think about just all the ways that you can poke holes in it, reveal all the ways in which plants are interacting with each other, let alone the rest of the living world and often non-living world. And it just makes you realize how complex these organisms truly are. And to me, I love a complicated story because, A, it's probably still more simple than it actually is, but it just means you're never, ever going to get bored in this field. Like, I don't care what level of of involvement you have in it, whether you're a scientist or just the casual person that likes to read and go exploring. It it just, there's no end to the layers of this layer cake. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Totally. And that's why, you know, with our our podcast, I may have mentioned when I was on before, my wife asked me once, are you guys ever going to run out of topics? And (laughs) it's not possible. Yeah, (laughs) It's not possible. Do you not know me? Do you not know what I do? (laughs) Our problem episode to episode is is just deciding what to cover. I can imagine getting both of you in the room, let alone once you've decided how deep down that rabbit hole you want to go is also a challenge. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, Bill, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to enlighten us on this. Again, please, please, please go listen to the Black Walnut episode of the Field Guides podcast. It is a much deeper dive on this amazing species than we did here. This is a small fragment really at the end of the episode (laughs) that we've covered. It was one of those things I'm like, oh, they'll get to it. They'll get to it. And then I was like an hour into the drive. I'm like, they got to it. (laughs) So (laughs) no, it was, it's fantastic. And the whole podcast is great. The Mockingbird one has made me look at birds very differently. So thank you. So our pleasure. Thanks for listening and and thanks for plugging us. Um, I hope people, Check us out and enjoy us. And just one thing, if folks, if you're uh, listening to the Black Walnut episode, I would recommend the next episode to listen to is our Screech Owl episode. Yes. Yeah, that's usually the one I start people off on. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, Bill, thank you so much. I love you, man. Love you too. It's always an honor to be here. Cheers. All right. All right. That does it for this episode. How fascinating was that? 
it just goes to show you, you just got to question things and do your homework. Look at the primary science literature on this stuff. You will realize a lot of times there's not a lot of it out there, but sometimes you'll hit a gem or two of a paper that really open your eyes to a subject you've taken for granted, like I did, for so long. I thank Bill for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And again, go check out, if you haven't already, the Field Guides podcast. Hit that subscribe button. They are fantastic science communicators. They're doing a great thing for natural history, and I devour every episode that comes out, and I know you will too. Once again, that's the Field Guides podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to this, so you know how to get them, right? Before I let you go, I just have one last shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Susan. Susan signed up at the producer credit level, so they're getting all of the kickbacks you can possibly get from supporting the show over at patreon.com slash plants. And again, I mean it when I say I could not be doing this and I would not be doing this show without their support each and every month. You can support the show in other ways as well, including picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, and stickers. And all of them can be found in the show notes for this episode and every other episode I put out over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. So go check it out and consider helping support Indefensive Plants today. But that is it. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because as always, there's tons of great conversations just over the horizon. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.